Soft Brexit, Hard Brexit, Norway Plus, Canada Minus, Grey Brexit, Green Brexit, Red, White and Blue Brexit, Checkers Deal, No Deal. What the hell is going on in politics? I'm Matt Chorley and I can help you make sense of it all. Don't miss my award-winning Red Box political emails at 8am every morning exclusively with The Times. Subscribe now, search The Times Red Box. Hi, hi, boys and girls. This is the whole City Mark podcast. And today... 18 minutes past the hour is story time and the story I'm going to start reading to you is 1632 by Eric Flint Prologue The mystery would never be solved if you just simply join others like the Tosca event or the square crater or Calisco the catalogue in Spain occurrences Initial wide, worldwide excitement waned within a few months. It became clear that no quick answers would be found. For a few years, grieving relatives would, with some success, press officialdom to maintain the studies and inquiries. But there were no lawyers to keep the story fire stoked. Soon after the Grenfell disaster, that was an act of God of which insurance companies were not liable, then ten years disaster had devolved into another domain of antics and fusisms, like the Kennedy Association. Therefore, of course, it enjoyed a near eternal half-life. A few of any reputable scientists in the world held any hope for final explanation. Theories, of course, abandoned. Their vague traces in the instruments were impossible to decipher clearly, a small black hole passing from the earth. That was one theory. Another popped in the time until the underlying mathematicians were rejected in the light of later discoveries was that it was a fragment vintage shoestring that had struck the plate a glancing blow. The only man who ever came close to understanding a new universe was created was biologist, a junior biologist by the name of Hank Trepper. Attached almost an afterthought to one of the general terms sent to study the disaster. A team devoted several months to a study of the train that had replaced that had been once part of West Virginia. They came to no conclusions other than the obvious fact that the train was not indigenous to the area, but that was animated for the once avid interest of the city crowd. It was t- clearly terrestrial. The size of foreign terrain was mapped quite precisely. It formed a perfectly circular hemisphere, about six miles in diameter, probably half that depth of its centre. Once the team left, Trapper remained behind for a few mo- more months. Eventually, he had invented the flora flora, that being almost identical to those parts of Central Europe. He became excited. That matched the archaeological ball, which very, very differently suggested that the Ruined farmhouses on the new train were vaguely late medieval, early modern, Germanic fell to them. So did that mean, so did the seven human corpses found in one of the farmhouses, two men, two women, three children, the remains of them badly charred by fire, amongst the bones indicate at least two of the people have been murdered by some kind of large cutting implements. The dental evidence suggested that the dead people were not modern, or at least they had somehow never been given any kind of dental treatment. 
but medical examinations deterred that the murderers were very recent. The farmhouses were still smothering when they were found. Trapper tutored on the edge of the truth. Then, after several more months of work, failed to turn up to an any matching piece of disturbed terrain anywhere in Central Europe. He abandoned the study altogether. He had suspicions, but the only possible was a transfer transposition in time as well as space. Trevor was a junior biologist. His budding career would be ruined. He advanced his suspicions without evidence, and there was no there would be no evidence if he was right. What would remain of the area of West Virginia, which had vanished, was lost somewhere back in time. So Trevor accepted the loss of a year's work and went in search of green departures. He published his findings. Be sure but only in the dry factual accounts in obscure publications. He made attempts to draw conclusions or post-it theories or draw any kind of public attention. Just as well, his career would have been ruined, and for no good purpose. No one would have believed him, even if someone had the most extensive archaeological search of Central Europe would never have discovered the matching atmosphere. There was, of course, that region generally called Fallerenger, but that was almost four centuries earlier, and only in an instant. The moment these headphones had been transposed, a new universe split off from the old. Besides, the truth was far stranger than ever Chapel ever imagined. Even if he assumed that cause was some kind of natural cosmic disaster, in reality, the Granville disaster was a result of what humans of today would call Criminal negligence caused by a shard of cosmic garbage, a discarded fragment of what, for lack of better terms, would, would be called a work of art, a shaving, you might say, from a sculpture. The Afrique faced this solid amusements with a bit of space-time. They're quite obvious uh, if it's to the fat impact of their art on the rest of the universe. The CD would exterminate for... 80 million years later, by the Fatifuri. Ireland, the Fatifuri were a collateral bunch of one of the human race's multitude of descendant species. Their motive, however, was not revenge, for the two knew nothing about their origins and undisciplined called Earth. Far less, more than such a less minor as it, which occurred there, Fatifuri. It's terminated, so it was simply because many, after many stern warnings, they persisted in practicing their dangerous responsible art. Part 1. Tiger, tiger, bright and burning bright, in the forests of the night. I'm sorry about, about my parents, Mike. Tom gave the two people in question a look of resentment. I hoped he broke off. I hoped he broke off slightly fainting. I'm sorry, I really am. You spent a lot of money on all this. Mike Stones followed his gaze. Tim Simpson's mother and father were standing near the far wall of the cafeteria, some fifty feet away. Their postures were stiff, their faces sour. The most expensive clothing were worn like suits of armour. They were wearing the cups of a punch in their hands by thumb and forefinger, as it determined to make as little contact with the surrounding facilities as possible.
Micropressive smell. Oh, yes, the dignitaries from the civilization retain their savour of air among the cannibals. They hold a cup of blood, but don it if they drink if they drink it. Don't worry about it, Tom, he said softly. Mike's eyes moved away from the haughty couple against the woman surveyed the crowd, gazed at the field of satisfaction. The cafeteria was a very large room. The Italian grey and cream walls had been festooned with an ambulance of decorations which made up in tune as a festival abandon. Whatever they lacked in subdued good taste, many cultures plastic chairs had been moved against the walls, providing bright orange contrasts. Those few of them that they were holding that was not holding someone. Large tables ranged near the kitchen were laden with food and water, food and drink. With no caviar, no champagne, but a crowd which packed the room wouldn't have enjoyed the first. Fish, eggs, yuck. Second was presented by high school regulations. Mike was not concerned. He knew his folks. They would enjoy the simple fare which piled on the tables, thank you. Even if it was beneath the contempt of wealthy urban sophisticates, it's true the adults, even much the lesser older children, swarming over the place. Mike gave the young man staying at his side a little pat on the shoulder. It was like patting a slab of beef. Tom was the first string nose guard for West Virginia University versus his squad and looked the part. My sisters buried you, not your parents. Tom scolded. Don't matter. That, that could at last. Why they did not need to show up at my wedding if they were going to act like this. Mike glanced at him for all Tom's immense size. Mike didn't have to look up. Tom was barely six foot tall, about Mike's own height, but even if he outweighed him by a good hundred pounds. Tom went back to glaring at his parents. His face was stiff as theirs, unreserved. Mike studied his new brother-in-law. Very new brother-in-law. The wedding had been, had been held two early hours earlier in a small church less than a mile away from the high school. Tom's parents had been just as haughty rude at the church as they'd been now at the reception. Their son would have been married in a proper dis- discreet family, in a proper excluded crew field. Not, not... This Yoho preacher in the Yoho shack. Mike and his sister abandoned the state should start faith in it. Evidence as a favour of quite antiquism. Years ago in Mike's case, but neither of them had once considered having Rita married anywhere else. Pastor was a friend of the family, and his father and grandfather had been before him. A Calvinist foundation of the ceremony had both bothered them not in the least. Mike choked down and laughed, if nothing else had been worth it just to see the way the passage fire and brimstone had caused obvious consultation in terms of sophisticated parents. His humour faded quickly. Mike could sense the pain lurking within Tom's eyes. An old pain, he thought, the dull, never-ending ache of a man whose father disappointment of him since he was a small boy. Tom had been born into one of the wealthiest families in Pittsburgh. His mother was an old Eastern money. His father, John Chandler Simpson, was a chief executive officer of a large paranormal corporation. John Simpson liked to brag about 
having worked his way from the ranks, the booth was typical of a man. Yes, he had spent a total of six months on the shop floor of the foreman after he retired from the Navy officer corps. The fact that his father owned a company, however, is that he accounted for his later advancements. John Charlie Simpson fully expected his own son to follow in those well-worn footsteps. But Tom had never fit in his family mode and expectations, not when he'd been a boy, and not now when he was of age. Mike knew that that John Turner had been furious with his son chose V V Voyu over Cranberry Mellon, especially given the reason football, not not even a quarterback, and both his parents had been well not apologetic at their son's choice of a wife. Mike's eyes screened the room until they fell on the figure in a wedding dress, laughing at something being said by a young woman outside. His sister Rita, sharing quips of one of her bridesmaids. The contrast between the girls was striking. The bridesmaid Sharon was attractive in a he- slightly heavy, buxom sort of way. She was very dark, complected, even for a black woman. Tom's sister was also pretty, but so slender. She bordered on being downright skinny, her complexion very pale, freckles, blue eyes, hair almost as dark as her brother's, betrayed her own ethnic origins, typically Alabitian Mongol, a daughter and sister of a coal miners. Poor white traps, yep, that's what we are, all right. Have a cough. I remember anger in Mike's fault, only contempt for Tom's parents, a pity for Tom himself. Mike's father had a high school education. Jim Stearns had worked in a coal mine since he was 18, never been able to afford more than a modest house. He hoped to his children through college, but the mine roof, which crippled him, eventually caused his death and put paid to those plans. In a quintessential nobody, on the day he finally died, Mike had been like a stunt ox. Years later, he could feel the aching pain in his heart, where a giant had once lived. Let it go, Tom. Just let it go. If it's it's worth anything, your brother-in-law approves of you. (coughs) (coughs) Tom puffed out his cheeks, slowly blew up. Breath, it is quite a bit. Perhaps Lee shook his head as if to clear his mind for over concerns. He turned to face Mike squarely. Give it to me straight, Mike. I'm graduating in a few months. I've got to make my bitter decision. Do you think I'm good enough to make it to the pros? <coughs> Mike replied, came instant affirm. Nope. He took his head briefly. Take it from me, buddy. You're right where I was, the worst possible place. Almost good enough, good enough to keep hoping, but Tom Farrell's still hoping. You made it in a way, hell, you died undefeated. Mike chuckled, sure did. After all, eight of my professional fights like every week. He reached up and struck the little scar on his left elbow. My last fight had been made to the second card a little bit old Pretty big time. Chuckle came again, more of a right laugh. Too big, I won, barely in points. 
Cooper Kid demanded a rematch. That's when I finally had enough. Said as a quit. Man's got to know his limitations. Tom was still frowning, still hoping Mike placed a hand on his thick arm. Tom, face it. You've got no father than I do. Realizing that you only beat the kid in front of you because you were a little more experienced and a little more safer and a little more luckier. He went to remembering the young Mexican boxer with speed and power being well night terrifying. But that kid he learned soon enough the fact is that he's a lot better than you ever be. So I'll quit before my brains got scrambled. You should go do the same while you've got your healthy knees. <coughs> Sorry about that cough. And the knocking on the wall. Again, Tom puffed out his cheeks and again blew out a slow breath. He smiled on the verge of saying something, but emotion caught his eye. His new wife was approaching with a people tone. Tom was suddenly beaming like a child, watching that growing smile. Mike felt his own heart warming. How the sweet kid come with such cruddy parents. Mike reached her by with her usual feminine energy. She started by embracing a new husband, a man that was worldly appropriate in a high school of Katrina. Swinging on to him, wrapping both legs around his thighs. When he'd first be down, the fierce and deservedly unvirgil kiss provided a semi lecherous embrace. Then bouncing off, she gave Mike a hug which lacked its sexual overtones was almost as vigorous. The preliminaries done, Rita spun around and waved forward the two people like behind her. Outside of the accompanying grin, the gesture resembled Empress summing at lackeys. Shane was screwing grinning herself. Man next to her wore a more subdued smile. He was a black man, somewhere in the fifties, dressed in a very expensive looking suit. Conservative handmade tailor fitting the man perfectly, but it seemed at odds with a smile on his face. There was something a bit rakish about the smile, Mike thought. He suspected from the man's poise stance that the body Beneath the suit was far more athletic than its sober cut would ever suggest. Mike, this is Sharon's father. I want to introduce you. She reached back more, or less hold the parent in question to the fore, and moved her hand back and full vigorously. My brother, Max Tens, brother, Dr. James Nicholas, be very polite, brother of mine. He's a surgeon. Probably got five or four or five scalpels tucked away somewhere. An instant later, she was charging off, hailing Tom and showing together towards a cluster of people, clashing around away in a corner of the cafeteria. Mike and Dr. Nichols were left alone. Mike eyed the stranger, unsure how to open a conversation. He opted for dry humour, low humour. My brother laws for a long here for a long night, he said dryly. If I know my sister. The, the, the doctor's smile widened. The hint of rakishness deepened. I would say so, he dawned. If she's always this energetic. Mike stuck, t- shook his head fondly. Said she was a toddler. Having broken the ice, Mike took the time to explain the man. Let's him more carefully. 
With a few seconds, he decided his initial impressions were correct. Sharon Farmer was a studying contradiction. His skin was very dark, almost pure black. His eyes were grey, kinky cut, very short. Features are blunt and rough-looking. The kind of face associated with more of a long man than a doctor. He wore his fine clothing with ease, and two rings on his fingers were simple in design and very tasteful. One was plain wedding ring, the other a subdued pinky ring. The addiction was cultured by the accent came from the city streets. Then, James Nicholas, James Nicholas was not a big man, no more five foot eight inches tall, and not particularly stocky. It seemed to exude a certain physical presence. A quick glance at the doctor's hands confirmed my guess. A faint scars of those outside hands had not come from working in medical profession. Nicholas was returning Mike's examination one of his own. There seemed to be a little twinkle in his eyes. Mike guessed that he, he would like the man and decided to probe the possibility. So, Doc, did you did your judge give you a choice between the army and the marines and me? Nicholas snorted. There's a twinkle in his eyes. Not hardly. Marines for you, Nicholas? Mike shook his head. You poor bastard. He let, him, he let me pick. He let me pick. Says so it was crazy. I took the army. I want no part of Paris, this island. Gritnikus groaned. Well, you're probably just up for an insult and battery, I imagine. I'm brought too many. He took Mike's smile for an answer. His own head shake was rueful. You couldn't prove it since I fumbled the things like Lord Hardy routine, but the Authorities had their own dark suspicions, so the judge was hard as stone. Marines, Nichols, I'm sick of you. Tired of you. Even that was six years downstate. The doctor shrugged. I admit that judge probably saved my life. His expression became filled with mock outrage. The accent thickened. But I still say it ain't our robbery when a dumb kid drops a gun on the way into a liquor store and gets caught running five blocks away. Hell! Who knows, maybe he was just looking for his rightful owner and realised the portrait that it was a stolen piece. Mike burst in laughter. When his eyes met those of Nicholas again, the silent strain between them was warm and approving. The way two men meeting for the first time occasionally was an instant liking for each other. Mike glanced towards his new in-laws. He was not surprised to see these righteous gravedries and drawn near disapproving eyes. He met their stern frowns with a smile, despite this bravely covered in underlining mockery. Yeah, that's right, you fat bitch farts. Two scapegoats right before your eyes. As close to outright ex-cons as you get, heavens. Nicholas broke into Mike's silence, test the wheels with the, Sim- with the Simpsons. So, you're the famous brother. The doctor murmured, startled over my left eyes, left the symptoms. I wasn't aware that I was famous, he protested. Nicholas shrugged, smiling. Pens on the circle, I imagine. For what I can tell, listening to that gar- garbage gabble from the last couple of days, every one of your sister's friend, colleagues' friends has a question you. You're quite a romantic fellow, you know. Again, Mike was startled, and again he must have shown his face. Oh, come on, Mike. 
That's all, Nick. You're still in your mid thirties. You look younger than not that. Tall, handsome, well handsome enough. But most of all, you've got a glamorous history. Glamorous? Choked. Are you nuts? Nichols was grinning now. Give me a break. You can't fool me. He made a little sweeping gesture with his hands indicating himself. Do you see what do you see here? A very perfectious looking black man in the mid fifties, right? His dark eyes glinted with human knowledge. And what else? My eye popped. And let's call it history. You ain't always proper or was it proper doctor? Certainly wasn't. I don't I didn't think that you, uh, when I was age I was gonna take to advantage of it. Nicholas Roy Graham changed to gentle screen. You're a classic, mate. If it's old town will always tugs at sentiment. Reckless and darkest sheep of the family, leaving town for law canalium, adventurous dad, soldier, long swordsman, truck driver, professional doctor, disputable roastable. Even if he did manage to take away three years in college, then smile faded away quickly. And then your father was crippled. You came back to take care of your family. You did a good job. As, as you done scarring him to death earlier. Quite respectable now. Even managed to get yourself elected president of your local miners union a couple of years back. I can see the reader's been telling tales. He started looking for his sister, David Glare, when his eyes fell on the Simpsons. He was still frowning at him. So he bestowed a glare on them. On them. See, he demanded my new laws don't feel, see the film or any romantic attraction. Me, respectfully. <laughs> Nichols and Graves followed me. Well, respectable. He's an application, application sort of way. Don't think Mr. Bluebird of her is modified that his new daughter-in-law's brother is a stone-hard union boy. Man as well as a damn hillbilly, not hardly. Since it's a still main, but still maintaining a gaze. Stare. Mike was matching it and adding a grin to the bargain. It was purely photo. A sheer blatant, unyielding challenge. Nicholas would remember that savage grin in the years to come. Remember it and be thankful. The ring of fire came, they entered. A new and very savage world. Chapter 2 The flash was almost blinding. For an instant, the room seemed filled by sunlight. The upcreating thunder rattled the rooms. Mike ducked, hunched. Jim's Nichols' reactions was more dramatic. Incoming, he yelped, flinging himself to the floor and Covering his head from his his head with his arms, he seemed utterly oblivious to any possible danger to his expensive suit. Half dazed, Mike stared through the plain glass windows of the cafeteria. The image was still glowing in his eyes, as the greatest lightning bolt ever heard had just struck right next to the skull, but barely he couldn't see any actual damage. The windows had been cracked. None of the multiple cars and trucks in the parking lot seemed damaged. Neither the people in the parking lot seemed like a bunch of squawking chickens. None of them seemed to have been hurt. The men in the parking lot were, were mostly coal miners from the local. Would come in for all the 
over the area for his sister's wedding, partly because the United Mine Workers Union America never missed a chance to flaunt their solidarity. The UIMWA sticks together like fault, and almost every single member of his local had shown up for the wedding with his families in tow. The sight of the startled men in the parking lot almost caused Mike to laugh, despite the sudden shock that incredibly that incredible sheet lighting. What the hell did did happen? The men were clustered at the back of the several pickups, making prudent little attempt to hide the fact they would sneak in a drink in clear and frequent vocation at high school's firm policy against alcoholic beverages. Anywhere on the premises, a motion in the corner of his eye caught Mike's attention. Elder Peter was scurrying around towards him, frowning like a Jupiter, like Jupiter. For a split second, Mike thought the high school principal would bet the lecture on the unseen behaviour of the coal miners in the parking lot. He choked down another laugh. No, he was just wondering what happened to Waiting for Ed to reach him, Mike felt a Moments more for a man. Wish he'd been a principal when I was at school. Might have been, have gotten in any much trouble. Good human, Ed. Ed is. I knew you. You got a drink. You got a drink in the parking lot, Mike. Peter was told the day before. Snort. Bunch of coal miners at the wedding reception. But less, keep them from waving the bottles around my nose. I feel that much stupid, all five and a half feet of me, marching out there to whack them with a ruler. Ed was, uh, was on his, uh, his side now. What happened? A principal glazing at the ceiling. The lights were out too. Mike hadn't noticed till I mentioned it. It was still poor daylight. Flake glass windows lining the entire side of the cafeteria made the room fresh and lighting almost redundant. I don't know, Ed. Mike set his, set his cup of punch unspiked. He hadn't felt he, he hadn't felt he could break the rules himself. On the table nearby him, Doc, Dr. Nichols was staring starting rise. Mike lended him hand. Lord, I do feel stupid, my the doctor. Brushing his clothes, fortunately his finery, uh, the cafeteria floor had been mopped and waxed to the shine. A moment here, I thought I was back at King Shari. He's too asked a venerable question. What the hell was that? The crowd, large and crowded room, now in a muted uproar. Everyone asking the same thing, but there was no panic. Whatever there, whatever it was, there was nothing immediately disastrous seemed to have occurred. Let's get outside," said Mike heading towards the cafeteria door. Maybe we'll get a better idea. He glanced around the room, looking for his sister. He spotted Rita, almost at once clutching Tom's arm. She'd been a bit, seemed a bit alarmed, but was obviously unhurt. By the time Mike reached the door, Frank Jackson pushed his way through the babbling crowd, seeing the stucky grey form of his union secretary-treasurer, followed by five other miners from the local. Mike felt a flash of pride. You, MVA, solidarity forever. Meeting Frank's eyes, Mike shrugged and looked, shook his head. I don't know what's happened here either. Let's go outside and check around. 
few seconds later, the little group of men were passing through the entrance of the telescope, making their way to the parking lot. Seeing him down, come dozens of Mike's union, local union members started moving in the, in the direction. Most of them had enough self-possession to leave their drinks behind in the vehicles. Mike's first concern was at the high school itself. His eyes ranged up and down the long row of buildings, looking for any signs of damage, but none of the beige and white structure seemed to have been harmed at all. Everything looks okay, murmured Ed, with heartfelt relief that the relative new consolated high school, built not much more than two decades ago, but using a lot of volunteer labour, was a pride and joy to be wearing. No one was that more true than its principal. Mike looked at, to the west, towards Grantsville. The town itself, nearly two miles away, was hidden between the hills, which gave Northern West Germany its distinctive landscape. But Mike couldn't take any obvious indications of trouble in that direction either. His eyes moved to the south. High school being built on a gentle slope. North of Buffalo Creek, a bottom of slope lay beyond the end of the parking lot. U.S. Route 215 ran parallel to a small river. The hills on the other side of the little valley were steep, covered with trees and inheritable except for a handful of trailers. Nothing. His eyes began following the highway at the bottom of the slope towards the large town of Fairmont, some 15 miles to the east. Stop. There was a hint of smoke. If I did the hills southwest of the school, something burning over there. So everyone followed his fingers. Sure enough, murdered, uh, muttered Frank. Come on, Ed. Let's call the fire brigade. The union, the union secretary, treasurer, and high school principal started moving towards the double doors leading to the school. They didn't see the man coming through these doors. They stopped. Hey, Dan. Frank pointed to the thick columns of smoke raising the there. See if you can get hold of the volunteers. We've got trouble here. Grantsville police chief didn't waste any, more than two seconds staring at the smoke. He was hurrying around his vehicle and his radio. Radio wasn't working for some reason, nothing but static, cursing under his breath. Dan looked up and spotted pizza. Do you have, do you do you use the phones? Have you have you to use the phones? He shouted, the radio ain't working. The, phone, the phones ain't working either, responded Peter. I send someone down there in the car. Principal hurried back towards the school. I get hold of Doc, Doc Adams while you at it, Peter shouted to his retreating phone. We might need some medical help, Peter. Peter waved his acknowledgement. By then, Michael Frank had several other coal miners already started out their trucks. Dan Frost was not surprised at their instant assumption that they would be accompanying him to see who the problem was. In truth, he took it granted. Dan had once offered a position, been offered a position in a large city police force and a considerable large wage salary. He didn't want, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he hadn't thought for more than three seconds about for turning down. Dan Frost had been seeing police work in big cities rather than staying in his little town, thinking 
we could be a cop instead of an occupying army. He climbed into his Cherokee and started the engine, then checked the interior of the vehicle. The shotgun was in the gun case in the back. It was actually an aluminium in his ammunition in his pistol in the glove compartment. So if I everything was in place, he leaned out the window. Mike Stretch pulled his truck alongside. Dan was surprised to see a black man riding in the passenger seat. Dr. Nichols, here's here's the surgeon. Mike explained, half shy. You volunteer to come along? Mike hooked a thumb under his shoulder. Your daughter, your daughter's will ride with Frank. Turns out she's a trained paramedic. Dan nodded, and an instant later he was driving the Cherokee down the Espelt Road leading to Route 215. Three pickups, a van followed, carrying eight coal miners along with James and Sharon Nichols. Behind him, his rear window, Dan could see a mob of people pouring out of the high school. There's something slightly comical about the scene, squawking chickens, wearing their chicken Sunday best for the wedding. Once he reached the road, Dan turned left. Route 215 was well built, two-lane highway. Even running through the hills and hollows, it was quite—it was easy possible to drive 50 miles an hour. A mini stretch from Dan took it more slowly than usual. He was still uncertain about what what was feeling. The flash was been truly incredible for that. It, for the innocent, first had been. As certain that a nuclear war had started. Everything seemed, seemed normal, though, as far as he could tell. See, drive me along Buffalo Creek now, on the other side of the railway, on the side of the creek, a foot of the hills, railway tracks, and found parallel to the road. He caught a glimpse of the two house traders nestled away in the woods. They're old, weather-beaten, ransacked, but otherwise unharmed. Coming round a bend, Dan threw on the brakes. The highway ended abruptly in a shiny wall. Perhaps six feet tall, a car, small car had skidded sideways into the wall, caving part, part of it in, part of it. Dirt, realised, over the hood. Dan could see a woman's face staring at him through the driver's side window. Window was a woman's wide eye. That's Jenny Lynch, he murmured. He studied, stared at the wall. Across the road. What in the hell is he going on? Dan got out of his chair. Behind him, he could hear the miner's truck coming out to a halt and the driver's door opening. When he reached the car, he, he tapped on the window slowly. Jenny rolled it down. Are you okay? The youngest pump, pumpish pump woman nodded instantly. I think. So then she she reaches shaking hand towards her face. Did I kill someone? I don't know what happened. Words started coming out in a rash. That was a flash, some kind of explosion. I don't know. Then there's, there's this wall. When I came for it, I hit the brakes. Car started skidding. Oh, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. Dan patted her on the shoulder. Relax, Jenny. You can't hurt yourself. It didn't hurt anyone. I think he was just a little shaken up. Remember, Nicholas, he got the doctor.
her and shoulder relaxed, and you don't hurt anyone. I think there's a little shaken up. You remember Nichols? We've got the doctor with us. Hold on, just you thought your turn. But Nicholas was already there. Nicholas was there. The doctor gently shoulder down aside and gave Jenny a quick examination. I don't think there's anything serious, he added. Let's get her out of the car. He opened the door. A moment later, Ian Dan was helping Jenny. One other than being shaken, pal, the woman didn't seem harmed. Come here a second, will you, Dan? said Mike. The Union President was squatted by a strange wall, digging into a, into it with a pocket knife. Detective walked over. That thing is just dirt, Mike scooped. Nothing but plain old dirt. He scooped another scoop out of the wall. As soon as it careers of a broken, the shiny surface turned into a nothing but pile of soil. The only reason it doesn't sh- isn't shiny because Mike wrote for words. It's as if it, the dirt has been cut by a perfect brazier. He poked at the wall again. See? As soon as you break it through the surface, nothing but dirt. That's a, that, what the hell has been... Oh, could that... Could that... Done... That. Where did that come from? Mike glanced right and left. The wall continued to both sides of the road. It was a completely different landscape that suddenly been jamming together. He could see the side of typical West Virginia hill to itself. The site was now a good cave, just as shiny as the wall across the road, except that the pockets of soil were falling loose. Dan Shroud, he started to stay, say something when he heard a sudden shriek. Startled, he rose, stared at the wall, and instant later a body hove over the top and crushed into him. The impact sent Dan sprawling on the pavement. The... Body, a young girl, he realised dimly, a ragged dressed teenager landed on top of him. Still shrieking, the girl bounced off him, scrambled back to the bank, heading for the street, still screaming. Half days, Dan started to rise. Mac was, Mike was by his side. Standing hand, Dan took it and got back to his feet. Everything was happening too fast. He just started to turn, looking for the woman, when he saw two new figures appeared on the wall. Men! Armed. Mike's back was torn towards him, half blocking Dan's view. Dan pushed, pushed, pushed him off and reached for his pistol. One of the men, uh, then the other, began raising his rifle. What was that strange looking weapon? Dan's pistol was clear of the po- of a poster. Coming up, halt! he shouted. Drop your weapons. Whoever's weapon went off, the gun made a strange booming sound. Dan felt the bullet ricochet off the pavement. He caught a glimpse of Mike putting himself down. Dan had his pistol up, levered it on the side, too quick to grip. Then round f- from the second rifle, slammed into his left shoulder, knocking him sideways. His mind felt suspended. Dan was never actually fired his weapon in the night situation, but he was instructing the police combat tactics and spent uncounted hours of firing ranges and simulated drills. His training took took over. Using his right hand, he brought the pistol back on target, ditched his mind, detached his mind weapon as a man was wearing some kind of armour and a helmet. Dan had an ex- was an expert shot. 
range was more than thirty feet. He fired. Fired again. Thought the caliber of rounds practically severed the man's neck. He flopped backward out of sight. Dayton swung his pistol to the left. The other man was still standing in the wall, wearing something with his weapon. Two was wearing was wearing armour, but had no helmet. Helmet. Dayton fired again, fired again. Three shots in less than two seconds. Head was at all these rounds was nothing but ruined, ruptured ruin. Man clutched to his knees, dropping in his weapon. Secondly, both the men and his firearm were sliding over the wall. Fireman, fireman, um, landed on the pavement with a clutter that the body landed with a sudden thump. Dan felt himself slumping. He sensed that his arm, his whole body, was soaked with blood. Mike caught him and slowed him to the ground. He was fading just out now. Shot, he realised, I'm not losing a lot of blood. Dimly, he, 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 dimly he recognises the face of the black doctor looming over him. His vision was getting blurred. There was something, there was something he had to do, urgent. Oh yeah, mate, he whispered, I'm deputising you. And the other guys, move, move, what, what the hell? He faded it uh, out, backing in. Just whenever you get to, got to fade it out. He, how is he, mate? Asked. Nicholas shook his head. The doctor pulled out handkerchief and was trying to stalk the wound. The clock was already soaking through. I think he's just a fresh wound, he murmured. But Jesus, what did that bastard get shot with anyway? Shotgun smoke? Then he right his shoulder off. Sharon, can come here? His daughter hurried up. Nicholas was relieved to see his daughter carry the first aid kit. Frank Jackson must have had one in his truck. The doctor spotted another miner holding the first aid kit out of his own vehicle. Thank God for country boys. While the clean windscreen fault. When Nicholas and his daughter started attending Dan Frost, one of the other miners picked up their sailor's weapon. Ken Hobbs, that was. He was in his early sixties. And like many men here, it was the fiercest of the black powder gems. Still, while you, well, look at this thing, Mike, he's down there holding it up front. I swear to God, this is a fucking match, look. Noticing my sham walking at his father's side. My father's side, come on, it's my father's side. Sorry, man, about that, about that, I do she only knows him. She proposed. <coughs> well, Nicholas is decided to attend to Matt Tan first. One of the mines picked up his sailor's weapon. Ken Hobbs was there. He's only six years, and like many others in many areas, pieces. Antique powdered guns. Will you look at this thing, Mike? He demanded, holding up the fire. I swear to God, this is a fucking matchlock. Nothing, Sharon. Noticing Sharon working the father's side. Hobbs fit fuss. Sorry, ma'am, about the bad language. Sharon annoyed him. She was too preoccupied with helping the father. Dan's cl- cl- eyes were closed. His, pale, his face was pale as a sheet. 
Mike turned away. The hawks came up to him, extending the captured weapon. He rises in face, crunched up in the puzzlement with a mass of wrinkles. I swear, Mike, it's a bat shot. That's a picture that was in one of my books. Um, another might have rang up. Just... Marion, Shannon, nodded him. So you too occupied helping her father. Dan closed her eyes were closed. His face was pale as sheet. Mike turned away. Hobbs came up to him, extending the captured weapon. His wizened face, scrunched up with puzzlement, was a mass of wrinkles. I swear, Mike, it's a matchlock. There's a picture of them in one of my books at home. Another minor, Hank Jones, came up. You ought to be careful handling that, he murmured. You might, you know, mess up the fingerprints. Hobbs started to make some vaguer, started to make some vulgar report. Then, remember Sharon, turned profoundly. It's a small, simple hiss. What? Hank, we can, we, so we can have the culprit. He, he gestured to the corpse lying at the foot of the predatory embankment. In case you didn't notice, Dan's only blue that started to be his head off. Another miner had scrambled in onto the wall, and he was studying the same corpse of the same of the other man. He barked a harsh laugh. Same here, two rounds, right through the neck. Daryl McCarthy was in his early twenties. He was none of, one of, had none of Hobbs' official qualms about using banned language in front of women. But unsuccessful anyway. Only one thing is holding his arsehole head on his body. It's it's maybe three or four strips of little meat, little strips of meat. Right, Carly Rose standing on a flip of the wall. He stared down and down across her conscious body for. He looked, was full of approval. Both rounds hit the fucking, hit the bastard right on the throat. Only thing an asshole shot head to his, holding his head to head is his body, he announced loudly. It may be three strips of meat. McCarthy rose. Standing on the lip of his wall, he stared down and defrost frost unconscious form. He was full of approval. Both rounds hit the bastard right in the throat, blew his fucking neck to hell. All the comrades were gathered at the scene now. All of them sitting down at frost. All of them with approval. Mind me not to slip, slip off to him about uh, happy trails. Next time he says, I've had enough for Robert Jackson. Always heard he was a hell of a shot. Mike straightened up, remembering the girl. His eyes ranged down the creek where he lay. You probably... Half a mile away right now, said Frank. He pointed southwest across the creek. I saw her scramble over to the other side. The creek must be low. She went somewhere into the trees. Hank's face twisted in a ferocious crow. whole back of a dress had been ripped off, Mike. He stared at the corpse lying on the pavement. I think these guys were trying to rape her. Mike's eyes went to the corpse. They looked. 
They looked at the wall an unseen bearing dream. It's unseen tragedy below. Three columns of smoke were still rising. So many bears happening in here, guys, I stated. I don't think that's what it is. That's bears. Pointed at the corpse. I don't think this is all, all that, all of it. Sorry about that. Where was we children? No, 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 no. Much, no, no. You find somewhere bears or something. These guys just thought, I don't think that what is bad. What is bad? Point of course. I don't think this is this is all of it. Frank stood, stalked over the corpse and swooped over it. Look at this weird army. What do you think, Mike? Some kind of crazy spiders or something? Mike shrugged. I'm not. I've got no idea, Frank. But if there were two of them, there's no reason they can't be now. He gestured at Dan. Doctor Nichols seemed to have blood, have the blood flow starched. You, you heard the chief guys. He deputized us, told us to do whatever you'd done. The miners nodded and crowded a little closer. So get your guns, boys. I know damn well you've got something stashed in your vehicles. We're going hunting. As the men started moving towards the trucks, Mike considered, except for you, Ken, you've got to get down back to high school. They've got a clinic. Seeing the elderly Hobbs look at a suspicion, Mike elaborated curtly, Don't argue with me. I'm not, I am, I'm, I'm not your age, damn it. You're not, you've not got the only thing here, he pointed at Frost, better than tossing him into the back of pickup. Modified hubs nodded. I'll get my gun. Leave it with you guys. Mike heard Nichols murmur something towards something to his daughter. A moment later, the doctor was rising. Sharon, can you do as much for him right now as I can? He said, "It was just a fish wound, back big one, but nothing worse." She'll go back. She'll go back with him to the clinic. Mike cocked an eyebrow. Nichols smiled thinly. I'll come with you, Nichols nodded towards the wall. Like you said, something's bad's going down here. I suspect you need me down the road a while. Mike hesitated, then studying the hard, rough face of very slim foul. That was. He nodded. Okay, me, Doc. He looked down at Frost. Can you, host a, can you get that host off him? You better have a weapon yourself. Monica's picked up occupied himself with the, that task. Mike went over to his own pickup. It was a work of it was work of a few seconds before he's gone from its place of concealment between the seat and the box of ammunition. He hefted a big point three two seven magnum. The weapon was a Smith Western model twenty eight highway patrolman fixed sight revolver. Tucked into a clip holster. Fortunately, Mike had assisted on dress pants, using a belt instead of suspenders. He attached the holster to the belt and shoved the ammunition to the vented, into the vented tuxedo's belt pockets. Then he went over to Dan's trophy and took out the shotgun. He also found two boxes of ammunition. One of them contained rounds of .4 caliber. The other held double alt buckshot. Same rounds could be in the shop gun magazine. 
It pries out a half dozen shotgun shells and stuffed them in his pocket, pants pocket, a box of a point four old caliber ammunition he kept in his hand. Between the revolver and all the ammunition, he felt like a welding duck. Screw it, a rather well armed duck than a sitting one. Why now? Sharon and Hobbs have gotten down back into the truck. Back of the van, sorry. Jenny Lynch had recovered enough to lend it, lend them a hand. Less than a minute later, the van was turning around and heading back to the high school. Mike's union members were gathered around him. All of them were armed. Most of them would hold pistols, except for Frank's beloved Levered Action Winchester and Hank Efforts. For God's sake, Christ's sake, Harry snap, Mike snap. Don't I ever get, don't ever get, Dan, catch you with that. Harry grinned. He was the same age as Daryl. They were best friends. In fact, they shared Daryl's carefree youthful attitudes. And whilst round with Sean of Shargon, he demanded, jerked his head around, pointed to everyone else with his, with his chin. He didn't know as if it's to everyone down wrong with these girls ain't illegal. When you get down to it, so what's your what other concealed weapons among friends? A little chuckle went down the group. Mike, Mike made a face. Yeah, well you're right. Better be close, but damn close. That's that that with that thing. Don't forget these guys were wearing armor. I turned out. I turned out to the doctor and handed him a box point of full old caliber ammunition. He found the glove compartment. Nickers. Put down the first aid kit he was carrying. Mike was not particularly surprised to see the quick, expert way in which Nichols reloaded an automatic pistol. We all trained in Marines, I mean, he murmured. Nichols taught the Marines my ass. I knew that what to do with one of these before he was 12. You have to do automatic. This is Blackstone Rangers training. I got up within spitting distance of the 63rd in Cottage Grove. Suddenly, the black doctor was gleaming white, wickedly at the white man around him. Gentlemen, he said, Marines are on your side. Not to mention Chicago's worst ghetto. That's deal. Miners grinned back. Nice to have you along, Doc. That's Frank. Mike turned and strode towards the embankment. Like you said, that's deal. And there you are, children. Chapter 1, Prologue, and Chapter 1 and 2 of 632, 1632. If you want more, I shall be in the mall tomorrow. Bye-bye, children. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Host Female Podcast Show. Thank you for listening. Soft Brexit, Hard Brexit, Norway Plus, Canada Minus, Grey Brexit, Green Brexit, Red, White and Blue Brexit, Checkers Deal, No Deal. What the hell is going on in politics? I'm Matt Chorley and I can help you make sense of it all. Don't miss my award-winning Red Box political emails at 8am every morning exclusively with The Times. Subscribe now, search The Times Red Box.